The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. There was a time when every car was built from scratch and everything was slightly different. There was a master craftsman, it was usually a man, who did the putting together of all the bits and pieces in the car, the machining and the refining of every little bit. And every little bit had a slightly different way of being jammed together. And it was very hard to be replicated. And that's why cars were really expensive to start with, until there was a standardising of how those cars were built and what sorts of materials and components were standardised to be put together. And then there was a plan and a series of iterations, often over decades, to a finely honed system where cars could be manufactured at huge volumes to much higher quality and at much lower prices and costs relative to incomes than they've ever been. I remember when I was a kid, and remember I'm in my mid-50s, that a car would cost 30000 New Zealand dollars to buy new. And a relatively small car these days probably costs not much more than that, even though we know incomes have risen sharply. So for the car industry, that constant improvement, the mass production, the standardisation, has effectively reduced the price over time made that product more accessible, safer, higher quality, and in the end, longer lasting. So why is it that in Aotearoa, we still build our houses like those cars made in the 1910s and the 1920s, before Henry Ford and Toyota came along and standardised and drove down the prices of those things? Why is building a house in New Zealand so expensive? And why hasn't a Henry Ford or a Mr. Toyota turned up to make houses much cheaper to build and to own in Aotearoa? Well, it might just be happening. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Shane Brealey, who is the Managing Director of Simplicity Living. He's been building houses for decades and has come up with a system which he built with NZ Living, his original company. And he's now joined up with Simplicity, the KiwiSaver provider, to start building not just hundreds, but thousands of build-to-rent apartments. These are two- and three-bedroomed, warm, dry, high-quality, long-lasting apartments, which will be rented out often at rates cheaper than an old, mouldy, leaky home that was built maybe 20, 30, 100 years ago. And he can do that 
at a cost of around about $2,500 per square metre, when a similar type of home built somewhere else by someone else costs more than $4,000 per square metre. How does he do it? Well, this week on When the Facts Change, we're going to unpack that difference between $2,500 per square metre and $4,000 per square metre. It's like taking a view into the Toyota factory, looking at how the new Toyota Corolla is made, comparing that with how the old, not so much Rolls-Royce, but an old Model T pre-standardisation was built. And asking the question, why don't we build all our homes like this? One simple data point, just to get you juiced up for this interview to come, is that simplicity living often has five, count them single digit five, the fingers on one hand, five blueprints for its projects. Whereas other projects done the uh, traditional way in New Zealand of using uh, sticks, i.e. 4 by 2 wood and plasterboard and all of the other usual things for building homes, they can have as many as 5,000 blueprints for a project of a similar size. That's this week on When the Facts Change. How is it we can start building houses like their Toyotas instead of old dungers from the 1910s? Welcome to Shane Brearley, the Managing Director of Simplicity Living to When the Facts Change. Great to see you, Shane. Good to be here, Bernard. Now, Simplicity Living is building a whole bunch of medium-density homes in Auckland and elsewhere, and doing it with some secret sauce, if you like, that means that the cost per square metre is significantly lower than for other building systems, more normal, I suppose you'd call it, building systems. Can you give us a, firstly, um, paint a picture for our listeners of what the sorts of homes that you're building for Simplicity Living sort of look like and feel like if you were to walk up to them and you'd never seen them before? So uh, we've got a number of typologies. Our uh, bread and butter is a three-level walk-up building, and they generally look like uh, something built very solidly. There are no painted surfaces on the exterior. They're predominantly brick-clad over a construction structure um, wall that has double glazing, Solux E rated glass. Uh, they're very solidly built, look very low maintenance. And that's, that's our go-to, the three-story walk-up. Then we have another typology, which is a lifted air-conditioned uh, product, which we haven't started construction on yet, but is well into design. And we've got two or three sites around Auckland that we are developing design on, and they go to about 11 uh, stories. So those are our two predominant typologies. So the, the thing I noticed, because I've been to have a look at one uh, in Glen Innes, is that the initial impression is of a very um, brick, solid, solid uh, concrete building. And I, I wondered if you could just sort of um, take us through, as if it was one of those um, three-dimensional models where you slice it through. You know, sometimes you see those engines which have been <laughs> cut in half. What What are we seeing? We've got the bricks on the outside, and then there's... Full concrete walls? Yeah, the external walls are concrete. Uh, the intertenancy walls are 140 millimetre thick reinforced concrete 
and the inter-tenancy floors are also concrete and they're up to 180 millimetres thick. So if you're cutting through this en engine block, as you say, what you're going to see is a very simple yet very robust and probably a 100-year-plus design life as opposed to the alternative, and this is generally what we see everybody else out there doing, is using cheaper materials but in a very complex combination with each other, which we have shown costs more, takes longer, and wouldn't have the same design life. So out of that complexity comes additional cost and poorer quality. So we've, we've just kept things really simple, honed the way that we deliver all of that to do the, you know, the um, previously thought unimaginable outcome, which is cheaper, faster, and better. So just thinking about the concrete walls and the structure of these buildings, one thing I noticed uh, when having a look, and it was a wet old day, was that people was, were working inside these concrete shells as if it wasn't raining, uh, which is different to what I often see, see with construction sites where when it's raining, everyone's stuck in the double cab ute uh, eating their pies and listening to the radio. Yeah, so one of the features that we discovered on our, on our second of 10 projects is that if you build the, the, the lower floor of, say, a three-storey walk-up, which is a very popular typology we see around, uh, around New Zealand at the moment, because you're getting good density of uh, dwellings per hectare and, you know, the cost of construction and is, is relatively cost-effective compared to a standalone house, if you do the bottom floor in concrete, generally people flick to the first floor and the second floor in, in timber to try to save weight and save costs and all of those misconceived notions. We decided just to go again with another floor to level one. And, then, and, and that's what we did on our first project. And we thought, well, gee, this place is leaking like a sieve every time it rains. And the whole, you know, the whole site, just it's like living in a waterfall for the next, the next uh, five or six hours after it stopped raining. And you really can't get any momentum or, or, or really move. So each floor of a building built out of solid concrete takes about three weeks. So a three-story walk-up knocked the structure over all the way to the underside of the roof uh, with a slab there as well. In nine weeks, you're then able to, to construct two uh, major components of your project simultaneously. You can do the internal fit-out, and so we're, we're framing up and putting plasterboard on and popping windows in on the ground level when we poured level two slab. And we're in level one doing framing and windows and plasterboard immediately after we poured the roof slab. So that's the internal project that is going on, unimpeded by foul weather or wind or whatever. We've also got the external cladding, which is the other you know, key part of the project, happening at the same time. So we're doing our brick veneers. We're doing our balustrades to our balconies. We're putting our jockey trusses on top of our concrete roof slab and all of the tin and flashings and all of that, gutters, spoutings, downpipes. And it takes, so our typical project, say, with 50 or 100 apartments might take um, 14 months. By using our construction method, we take about three months out of that. And it's just because we're able to overlap those two things. In the normal stick build, as you called it, and I, you know, I think it's probably a little bit derogatory, but I love using that term as well because it's exactly what a piece of 4 by 2 is. It's a stick. That 
construction site leaks like a sieve until you've got the last flashing on the roof, which is some three to four months later than we can do it. And uh, once you've also got the, all those three floors in concrete, if you like, then you can put a roof on. And if in 40 or 50 years' time, when you need to replace the roof, people don't actually have to leave the building, which uh, is something that's not always the case in a, in a normal construction of these one of these medium-density projects. Yeah, correct. And the other big win, apart from speed and, and, and time is money in construction because the cost of all, you know, being occupied on site is, is um, a function of time largely, it also um, simplifies a whole host of details, particularly in that multi-unit residential situation, whether it's a terraced house or an apartment, because all of the intertenancy zones where you have to have an acoustic rating, a fire rating, and all those, you know, being a being being good to your neighbour type of thing are all taken out with this concrete structural system. It's it's a structure, it's bracing, it's fire rating, it's an acoustic rating, all in the one hit. Um, so it's just a no-brainer to us. And, but if you ask any quantity surveyor in our sector, they will say, no way. The cost of that heavier, more permanent construction is going to be way more than the death by a thousand cuts that you have to otherwise do, which are all the proprietary type systems that are approved in, in stick build type construction, but they add up to an enormous, you know, it takes longer and it's more expensive and it's a lesser quality by the time you finish, finish assembling it all. And then the number of inspections you have to have from council, so you're always stopping and starting, stopping and starting we can just go like a freight train and then effectively the in interior of our apartments becomes a fit-out job. It's an interior decoration job. So we use just a standard plasterboard, whereas most other types of construction might have a barrier line, a fire line, a noise line, and all the other various branded products. We don't bother with that. That's something that really surprised me when I looked into it, that um, plasterboard, which I considered to be something that you slap on at the end and tack on, is actually in New Zealand, often with these stick build pr uh, projects, is actually braced and is considered part of the uh, uh, effective um, structure of the building. It's it's used as a bracing element. It's not just a, a something to, to cover up the, the, the sticks. Yeah, if I can just, um, you know, go back to where we started five years ago. Our first project was just over $2,000 a square metre, uh, 2050 it was, per square metre, plus GST, plus the external site works, which are about another four or $500 a square metre, it works out roughly. And we are now at 2,500 a square metre. And the reason we've only gone up by, you know, on average, that's uh, about 3% per annum for the last five years whereas a lot of the other um, inflationary forces reported out there, I think cumulatively over the last five years, somewhere around 40 to 45% is the general sort of benchmark that people, you know, in the industry uh, quote. And most of that damage is in the last two or three years. But to us, because our system is so simple and we're able to get the productivity gains because we just got better and faster at this kind of um, system, we haven't suffered the same inflationary uh, losses. So, and, you know, to us, a 3% per annum um, a shortfall, if you like, 
is the difference between the um, the, the cost of uh, additional material costs and the cost of inflation less the rate of innovation equals the net difference, whereas everybody else appears to have not focused on productivity gains and innovation, and they've just suffered the full brunt of the of the inflationary effects over the last five years. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. You just said a magic word there, uh, Shane, which was productivity. Um, as someone who, who who lives and breathes uh, economics, productivity is, you could argue, just about everything. And I'm curious about how you've worked together with your staff and your subcontractors and the system you've got to improve the productivity of the people working. We've already got the one example, which is that you have people working uh, throughout the day, regardless of whether it's raining. But uh, tell us about, you know, how you do your training and you organise your subcontractors together and the projects so that every hour that's being worked is productive, where sometimes you go to a building site and you see lots of people sitting around looking at each other waiting for <laughs> waiting for things to happen. Well, I guess the, the big thing is with the way that we assemble our team, we, we, we don't tender we don't change our business partners. We, we don't call for competitive prices. What we do instead is negotiate with our trusted, proven business partners, be they plumbers or electricians or architects or engineers or brick, um, brick suppliers. And we continually work on productivity gains, getting better, faster, more cost-effective every day. But the rest of the industry loves to tender. You know, they're real procurement junkies. They love to just try to get the lowest price. But if you're tendering, in my view, tendering gives you the lowest cost for the most inefficient form of delivery as opposed to a fair price for the most efficient form of delivery. And you can never get productivity gains if you're constantly changing your business partners because the next game, you're... Imagine being the All Black selector. You're having to select your playing 15 based on lowest price. Okay, so uh, 
Bill, meet John. John, uh, Fred's going to be outside you today, and, you know, good luck, guys. And that's why you see those guys sitting around on site um, sort of waiting for the next instruction or not quite knowing what, what is coming next. So it starts with the, building that team that are constant. Uh, they know each other. They know what's expected of them. The communications get really easy. And if you translate that through to our site supervision or our you know developer builder um, uh, amount of cost and time, we're building 27 homes per person per year in our firm as developer and builder. So 27 homes per person per year. Um, and we're actually building them. We're not outsourcing, outsourcing the construction of that. So I don't know anyone else who's even close to that. And I've heard numbers of two and three homes per person per year at best. Wow. And so then you sort of drill back. Okay, so what's another good metric? That is a really good test for people who, who might be listening to this to try to understand why they're at that 4,000 a square meter and, and not two and a half. And I'd ask them to count the number of drawings they've got per new home that they're developing. So I, I get asked um, on occasions to go in and assess another project that has got a budget blowout. And the first thing I do is I go and count the drawings. So I ask them for the whole architecture, structure, civil, electrical, hydraulic uh, drawings. And the answer is generally about the same every time, 50 to 1. <laughs> so if you've got 100 apartments, there are 5,000 drawings. Our number is five. In fact, and, and three out of those five have been prepared previously and are used again because we know they work. So, you know, it, it's about standardising the engine block about using the tried and proven pistons and, and uh, you know, to go back to your slicing through the engine block uh, kind of analogy. And then people start talking about uh, cookie cutters and, you know, so standardising your windows or standardising your kitchens or your bathroom layouts because you know it works. Why would you design a bespoke kitchen for every apartment every time when you start a new project? It makes no sense. You imagine what a, a Tesla Model S or an Audi A8 would cost if they designed each one using different componentry. It, it just makes no sense. So is a Tesla or a Model S a cookie cutter? Yes, that's right. And, and that's not a problem for people who are buying it. Uh, I'm, I, I'm in, I was very interested too in visiting the site to see that there were these uh, standardised um, building materials that were used, in particular window sizes, which it never occurred to me there were often dozens of different sizes of windows on a single project, but you've managed to pare that down to a smaller number and also use standardised appliances so that as the owner of a build-to-rent development, you have um, maintenance people and managers who don't have to... Um, uh, find uh, spare parts uh, on multiple different types of appliances. They know there's there's this one that's used, and you've probably got a a spare one ready um, for when something goes wrong in one of the developments or one of the apartments. Yeah, we're we're very clever. Um, our first project, we had fifty apartments and twenty one different size ranch sliders to our balconies. That that's how silly we were. So we've learned that we learned through our own mistakes, and we've asked ourselves why and how uh, we could possibly have ended up with that. And some of these windows were like thirty millimeters different from the one next door to it in height for no good reason whatsoever. 
And yet that's sort of the consequences of um, the, the key members of a, a design and development team working in isolation with each other. You know, the architect, in, uh, with all the best intent, thinks, you know, that's going to be okay. <laughs> so until he gets feedback from the developer, from the builder, and from the other key members of the team, which include subcontractors, which we value in the highest of regard because the knowledge at the coalface in our industry is the great untapped resource of our building sector. And a lot of our productivity gains come from those very clever people working at the coalface. And you know they're clever because when you see the cars and the boats at the boat ramps over summer lined up alongside the foreshore, they're pretty much all subcontractors and suppliers in the building industry, and they're doing just fine. <laughs> that process of having regular subcontractors that you use and building up that level of expertise uh, reminds me a bit of, of how in a factory, let's say a Toyota car factory, you've got people who are regularly working on the line constantly improving their process. Um, you could call it the Toyota way. It's also called Kaizen, where every time you build something, you think, how can I make this more efficient, more standard, higher quality, and and faster? How do you see your process of, of improving your productivity? Do you have this constant, let's see how we can uh, make it better? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're trying to do is drive labour hours and waste out of our system and um, the Toyota Way and Kaizen and continuous improvement and waste elimination, they're all, you know, central to our um, ethos. And it was something I was privileged when I worked for Lend Lease back in uh, in the, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. And um, I, you know, was able to study that and was always looking for an opportunity to put that into the, into the property sector. And, you know, finally in my sort of... Uh, fifth decade of life, I was um, able to, to do that and prove that it does work even in our construction sector. So every time you find an inefficiency or a problem or a defect, you then hone in on it, fix it, and then lock that fix into your system so that you're getting better every day. Um, whereas most other projects and other sites that I see, and I, you know, I go and visit other sites, they're constantly firefighting. They're solving a problem once and it only helps them through that day. And the next morning they get out of bed and they are firefighting again, just solving one-off problems. I don't think I'd have the energy to, you know, to get out of bed each day if that was, you know, my sort of my, my job. Whereas it's really satisfying. And I know, you know, with Kaizen and the Toyota Way, they they cherish failures because that gives them an opportunity to examine it. And they, they, you know, they stop the line. Let's fix that. Now we're going to be better at that forevermore. And it's it's so much more satisfying. Yeah. And and rather than having to fight fires every day and have a different problem with a different solution every every day, multiple times a day, you can build a system that's repeatable, that is documented, that more people can understand more easily. And um, a bit like software, I suppose, where when you're doing open source software development, you constantly refine it and then you uh, open it up and other people can look at it and use it. And what I was struck with um, your process is that you've been very open about 
your secret sauce. It's a bit like um, Colonel Sanders uh, saying, "Here, have a look at my my my, uh, my uh, spices and um, and and whey." But can can you tell us um, about what you're doing with your your relatively small numbers of drawings and your systems, so that this can be um, amplified across more than just simplicity living? Yeah, well, anyone who's out there who wants to, you know, ha- take a look at our system, they're you know, more than welcome to contact us and we'll we'll share freely. It's one of our, our corporate goals as Simplicity Living. Uh, and I'd go back to those, the number of drawings um, per apartment, per project. And one of the big failings in our, uh, in our, in our building sector is because it's perceived that our skill levels are so low and we haven't made a lot of uh, productivity gains because our skills appear to be relatively low on sites, we've defaulted to an off-site prefabrication solution with things like precast concrete and complex structural steel that require a lot of shop drawings and there's as much time and effort that goes into the design of those bespoke components then they fabricate them down the motorway somewhere, put them on a big heavy truck, bring them to site, lift them up with a tower crane or a big mobile crane, and put that one piece, one bespoke piece into place to compensate for the lack of skills on site. So all it becomes is a little assembly process on site. But they've, they've already spent all of the money in the design and the time and the bespoke component fabrication so if you were to look at our project and say, you know, we've got this project down on Mount Wellington Highway, it's about $160 million construction, we will have probably 20 shop drawings. A project of that scale would probably have two to 5,000 shop drawings typically. So we've got a shop drawing for windows, we've got a shop drawing for kitchens, and they were drawn in 2018, and we're still using them. <laughs> and there are about 20 of them. Otherwise, we don't have shop drawings. So that's one of the weaknesses in our in our industry is we love to sit and design and create bespoke componentry to then apply to that one project only. And if we're going to get on top of our housing affordability crisis, we are never going to do it using that technique. There is no future. Look at the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. How long will it take us to realise that that is no solution and if I can just um, refer back to your previous spin-off, um, which, which I, I listened to this morning about capital gains on housing and the nine-to-one ratio of the median household uh, value versus the median household income, we topped out at about 10 to 1 um, just prior to, you know, that was about November of 2021. And now we've come back to about a nine-to-one. And yet people are still thinking that in the housing sector they might enjoy a capital gain over, say, the next decade of 5 6 7% per annum. How can that possibly be? It, it means that 9 to 1 will have to go to 10 to 1, 11 to 1, 12 to 1, unless the average wage goes up at the same rate of, of capital gain. But I bet you 9 out of 10 of our listeners will think that capital gain will always outstrip CPI or the average wage increase. And we know pretty certainly what the average wage increase is going to be. So if you subscribe to the theory that capital gains are going to continue infinitum, then I think you're kidding yourself. So flipping that back, if it's not 
going to happen. And every OECD country around the world shows us that it's highly improbable that it will, then we need to be talking about this topic, which is productivity, innovation, and getting the cost of delivering our housing, good quality housing in the right locations. We've got to build it for the right, the right cost. And it's not going to be done using the current approach of our sector. We need to think production, continuous improvement, waste elimination. Just finally, you know, one of the arguments uh, other people put is that, you know, we don't have any more land left in New Zealand, that um, we we can't, um, of course, land's going to be very expensive because there isn't any more of it. Do you think there's enough land around to build this sort of um, homes that you're talking about, these sorts of three-storey three walk-ups, um, medium density, two, three bedroomed homes. Is there enough room and is there enough land available? We've got um, uh, choices all over town at the moment and we've got a map showing where our eight, eight and a half thousand homes in Auckland are going to go and there's just not enough hours in the day to uh, pursue every site that's before us right now. And it's all because um, our financial model works all day long. So when, when you're able to build efficiently, it gives you gas in the tank to be able to buy the right sites and the right locations for the right long-term solution. But if you're uh, you know, struggling to get on top of your efficiencies, then you're probably forced to try to steal land at, a, at a, you know, a, a very cheap price to make your financial model work. We don't have that same, same pressure. Not to say we want to pay more than we should, but there is an abundance of land across Auckland. No, no shortage at all. Shane Brealy there, the Managing Director of Simplicity Living. Thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks, man. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.